Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 72, Blessed, Chosen, and Beloved. Did Paul make the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest sentence ever? What's an apostle? And what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom is within us? Let's find out as we dig into the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Hello, everyone. It's good to be together again on this journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Last week, we we took the whole time laying an important cultural, historical uh, foundation for this book so that we would understand what's behind much of what Paul is saying. Uh, And now we're going to move into the actual book itself. And and folks, we're moving into some of the richest chapters in all of the New Testament. I told you before, Ephesians has been called, among other things, the book of mystery. And from the very beginning, Paul takes us both deeper and higher than maybe some of us have ever considered before. Today, we're going to look, we're going to begin to look at, at the longest sentence in the New Testament. In Greek, it's 202 words, and and for us, it's verses 3 through 14. It is so layered, it's so nuanced, it's so complicated in structure that almost every single translation breaks it up into sentences for the sake of clarity. But that's not the way it is in the original. It introduces many themes that, that Paul's going to develop throughout this letter, But before we jump into that long sentence, let's look at Paul's greeting, his salutation. Starting at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Paul starts off this letter by declaring and establishing his credentials. You know, in many places, Paul describes himself in in kind of self-effacing ways, I'm the least among the apostles, etc., but not here. He wants the Ephesians to know that it is the Lord who has appointed him, it's the Lord who has willed for him to be an apostle. This brings up the issue of spiritual authority, which is which is a big issue in the church. And, and I just want to share a simple definition I've shared with those who, who've walked with me for years. I think authentic spiritual authority can be defined as confidence without arrogance, humility without apology. And we see this in Paul. So he describes himself as an apostle. What is an apostle? The New Testament uses the Greek word apostolos, and it means one who is sent on a specific mission as an envoy or representative of the one who sent him. The word apostolos designates one who was uniquely commissioned by Christ to bear authoritative witness to his person and work. Now, in the New Testament, we see it used in three different ways. The first is when Paul or when Jesus pulls aside and then and then uh, listens to the Father and then invites twelve, which he named apostles. But the second is later Barnabas and James, the Lord's brother, are called apostles. So is Apollos, uh, perhaps Silvanus, who is also known as Silas. Titus, and then a couple of very interesting ones to me. Junia, you'll see that in, she's mentioned in, uh, in Romans 16. And she was an apostle. And then tradition tells us that Mary Magdalene was called the first among the apostles. Now there's a third category, and it's Paul. He was sent out with full delegated authority by Jesus. He he was sent out, we know, on the road to Damascus is where he's called. He has encounters with Christ where he receives revelation. So what marked Paul as an apostle? Why could he say with confidence he is an apostle of Christ Jesus? Well, first of all, he had seen the Lord after Jesus' resurrection. And uh, you can 
Read about that in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Secondly, he had received his commission directly from Jesus Christ and from God the Father. And he makes that very clear in his opening to his letter to the Galatians, which, by the way, is probably the earliest letter that we have. And thirdly, this is very interesting to me. Paul demonstrated the signs of an apostle. And in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he tells us this explicitly. He says, The signs of an apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders, and mighty works. And the fourth thing, Paul tells us that he labored more abundantly than all the rest. Apostles are sent by the Lord, and they're sent ones. That's kind of the, the core meaning. When I see apostolic people, they're moving, they're planting, they're moving forward all the time. Folks, we have missed this, especially, I'd say, in the last 30 years in the church. Apostles are not the head of networks or organizations. They're not at the top of any structure. In fact, Jesus said the opposite, right? We're to be servants of all if we want to lead. Apostles are very functional. I I love it more as a verb than a noun. And, And why do I stress this? Because we live in an era, at least with me working in ministry for years, where where people are referring to themselves as, I'm an apostle, I'm a bishop, I'm Bishop Smith, I'm Apostle Jones. I don't think that it all reflects what the scripture teaches us. Apostles, it's a, it's a verb, it's active. They're building, they're releasing, they're laying foundations. And as I told you last week, Paul was a master of this. Now, he tells us later in, uh, in Ephesians that apostles set the foundation for the church, along with prophets and pastors and teachers and so forth. They're the first in the list of offices. We'll get to that in chapter 4. So, he's an apostle. The next thing we, he addresses is the word saints. Now, in the Old Testament, the saints meant the chosen people of God. Uh, that ties into the whole thing of being a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Remember 1 Peter 2. But in the New Testament, they're called saints because Christ has cleansed them. He's made them new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, this status of saint is a gift it's, it's not a, a special category of especially uh, holy people. And then we come to a phrase that's so central, I'm going to come at it now, and then we're going to come back at it again in a few minutes, and that is in Christ. In Christ is central to Paul's theology. Perhaps it's the most important point in his theology. Did you know in the New Testament, Paul uses in Christ, in the Lord, in him, 164 times, 36 times in the book of Ephesians. We see in chapter 1 and 2, in Christ is repeated over and over again. So what does he mean? Well, again, I'm going to unwrap this a little bit later, but I'm teaching you in layers today. I'll tell you right now, we're only going to cover six verses, but just as I told you, these are very nuanced. They're very layered. We're going to come at them in layers. So, at this first whack at it, what does in Christ mean? To be in Christ, first of all, means that we have a saving relationship with Christ, and we are brought into union and communion with him. That's key for Paul, in such a way that we uh, are in Christ, and that because of that, what is true of him is true of us. His grace and his resources become our experience and possession. And then he says, grace and peace. St. Jerome wrote this. It's a wonderful little quote on grace and peace, which, by the way, Paul uses in every one of his letters. Jerome said this, the grace of the Father lies in his willingness to send the Son for our salvation. Well, the peace of the Son lies in the fact that we are reconciled to the Father through him. Isn't that lovely? Paul wrote this greeting in every one of his 13 letters. This was not the standard greeting of the day. If anyone tells you that, no, it wasn't. It was an affirmation. It was a blessing. It was pointing to eternal realities. And it was not a blessing um, from Paul 
It was, he was the messenger on behalf of God, bringing God's blessing. That's why he said, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This blessing's not hopeful wishes uh, of a father for his children. This is a declaration from the heart of God. By the way, it, it's, it's grounded in and an allusion to the great blessing that Aaron spoke in Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a wonderful blessing. You might want to just meditate on that sometime. (coughs) Excuse me. Now let's go a little deeper into grace and peace. What do we mean by grace? It's a word we hear all the time, all the time. Well, what did Paul mean? I think it is way beyond the standard kind of evangelical definition, grace is God's unmerited favor. It it doesn't, it includes that, but it goes so far beyond. I believe grace is the truth of God's essential, unwavering acceptance, forgiveness, and inclusion. Do you hear that unwavering? Grace is love that cares and stoops down and rescues. We live in a world of earning and deserving and merit, and and all of these move us toward judgment. But, But that's why everyone wants and needs grace. It's what we're meant for. Judgment kills. Only grace makes us truly alive because grace reflects God and life as he intended it to be. A simple phrase has been in me for a number of years now when I think of grace It's God saying to me, and by extension to you, I am always with you, and I am always for you. All of my concepts of grace are anchored in this truth. This is the grace that triumphs over my times of despair, my times of feeling guilt and shame, my times when I self-exclude. This is the grace that over and over calls me home to the reality and to the joy of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit calling me home because grace is not something that God gives. Grace is who God is. Peace. We know many of us in the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word is shalom. And it's packed with meaning and it means a lot more than peace. It includes perfect welfare. It includes serenity, prosperity, happiness, wholeness, and harmonious relationships. That's really interesting. It it includes everything for necessary and healthy living. The, The word in Hebrew almost paints a picture of a circle. And so it is, it is harmonious. It's horizontal as well as internal. Now, shalom included personal well-being, yes, but it is much more. And I think we need to get a hold of this right now, the church in our day, because shalom stands against oppression, against deceit, and everything else that violates God's divine order. In other words, peace isn't passive. It stands against oppression. It stands against what is wrong. So peace conveys well-being in all directions of our life. And that's the Old Testament word. Erene, which is the Greek word, expresses also blessing, but it's complete blessing. And, and this word is, is connected with reconciliation, with the love of God, with love for neighbor and even our enemies. And it's about right relationships. Now, with this background, we're realizing now that when we read, uh, you know, grace and peace to you, and we read it again and again, as I said, in all his letters, it's much more than his standard way of getting a letter started. It's a shorthand reminder. With every letter, he starts that the grace of God is everywhere and is always 
moving in one reconciling and eternally life-giving direction. I've shared this with you a number of times through the last several seasons. I believe there is a movement to God, and it is reflected in the cosmos. It is an eternally life-giving direction. Whenever we yield to this, the inevitable result in, through, and around us is the supernatural peace that Jesus promised all who would simply believe and receive it. All right, that's the salutation. Now, the rest of the time, we're going to be in the blessing. In this long, complex sentence, I told you 202 words, Paul is creating a beautiful declaration of praise to God for his wonderful work on our behalf. Now, I don't usually read such a long passage at once, but I want it to begin to wash over us. Verses 3 to 14. Excuse me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope in Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. That is an incredible sentence. It just washes over us in waves and waves. And he begins it with a declaration of blessing. The Hebrew word is bereka, and Jewish blessing was central to Jewish life. There's a great example with uh, Zechariah in, in Luke 1. You remember John the Baptist's father. Luke 1, 68-69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his child David. So, let's look at this complex sentence, the longest in the New Testament. All the way through it, we see Uh, Paul praising God. And it's directed toward God in response to his blessings toward us. He's blessed us. He's chosen us. We're in Christ. Therefore, Christ's blessings are ours. Now, I, I told you it's grammatically very difficult, and yet it expresses fullness and richness and, and majesty. It has been called a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. Isn't that remarkable? It introduces major themes that will be developed throughout this letter. Themes like fullness, God's grace in Christ, heavenly places, mystery of God's cosmic plan. Paul chose language not so much here for doctrinal clarity, but to install awe in the face of God's majesty. Now, folks, I've been reading, of course, because I've been preparing this, this season, I've been reading Ephesians multiple, multiple times. And so many times I don't get past these first 14 verses. They are amazing. So there's this blessing, and there's certain things about the blessing that stand out in this passage. First, it's Trinitarian. Uh, three times Paul in this blessing, writes, to the praise of his glory, or to the praise of his glorious grace. 
each time that phrase very purposely comes at the end of a passage that reflects one of the three persons of the Trinity. The first one is the Father, we'll look at that in a few minutes, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Another aspect is what's called cosmology, which is simply the relationship between Christ and his creation. And, uh, you know, the the cosmology of, of this blessing very much shares the cosmology of, of my favorite my favorite Christological hymn, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I've taught on that a number of times. And uh, he talks about the bringing together everything in Christ or the summing up or the uniting all things in him. I want you to notice a couple of things here. In verses 9 and 10, I'm reading from the New Living. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Now listen to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can't see and the things we can see, uh, rather other way around, can see and can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him and existed. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. We're going to see this develop through this letter. Thirdly, we're going to see heavenly places. Five times in this letter, he refers to either the heavenlies or heavenly places or heavenly realm, depending on what translation you're using. Refers to a very real but invisible realm, a place of constant activity. It's close to both the realm of spiritual blessing and the realm of spiritual warfare with dark powers. And then he says he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, this has led to much discussion over the years, over the centuries, around the issue of predestination and free will. And we're going to look at this. But, but for now, more than anything, for me, being chosen speaks of belonging, of security and identity. And so to summarize this first pass over these verses, Paul has created a heartfelt, almost passionate expression of praise to God for his wonderful plan of salvation. This plan is a manifestation of both God's glory and God's grace. The Father imparts abundant blessings to all who are connected to Jesus Christ in a dynamic and personal relationship. God chose a people for himself redeeming them. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge or down payment or guarantee until that day when he brings all things together in his son. Now, let's go back and take a closer look. The rest of today is going to be just verses 3 through 6. Once again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace and he freely bestowed, that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. This is both the beginning and the core of Paul's entire blessing. It sets the foundation for the letter. And, you know, these three verses is something that I have found myself praying over people for probably more than 30 years of ministry. And I speak into their minds and hopefully into their spirits. I say, God says, you are blessed Regardless of how you feel, the truth from heaven is you are blessed, you are chosen, and you are in the beloved. So these uh, verses focus on what the Father has blessed us with. We're going to shift to the Son at verse 7 next time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm fully aware I'm repeating these verses. I want them to sink in. So, blessed. 
Paul begins with expressing praise and blessing to God. There's a, you know, there's a prescribed set of prayers uh, for for all Jews to pray three times a day. They're called the the eighteen benedictions, and each begins with "Blessed are you, O Lord." By describe, so Paul's writing within that tradition and that context by describing God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is stressing that the God of Israel has a close Father Son relationship with Jesus the Messiah, and Paul writes that we bless the Father because of the blessings he's given to us. Theodoret, who was a 4th century church father, he identifies four blessings here. Theodoret says this, He has given us the hope of resurrection, the good news of immortality, the promise of the kingdom of heaven, and the dignity of sonship. These he calls spiritual blessings. This blessing highlights the centrality of Christ that Paul will express throughout this whole letter. Jesus is called Lord. That's a central point of the blessing is a celebration of Jesus' lordship over the entire cosmos. And in fact, if you'll remember, it, it stands against the, the uh, imperial cult I talked about last week where everyone was to say, Caesar is Lord. He's saying Jesus is Lord. The next phrase, in Christ. So we're going to go back, go a little deeper than I did a few minutes ago. All the blessings that Paul will express are found in Christ. In fact, that phrase is found 11 times in this one long sentence. So what does it mean? (coughs) Pardon me. God has blessed his people by virtue of our union with Christ. Those who've put their faith and lives in Christ are now joined to him. We participate in his death and resurrection and new life. Get your head around that. In Christ, we participate in his death. We participate, and that's why Paul talks in Colossians, for example, with baptism. We are buried with him. We participate in his death. We participate in his resurrection, and we participate, which we'll look at next week, in, in his new life. Seated with him in the heavenlies, chapter 2, verse 6 says. So you see that, that in Christ, we are, Paul, the mystic, is saying that we are, we are in him and existing in him in both the past, the present, and the future. These, these are mind-expanding things. Because we're in him, we have received every spiritual blessing. This blessing, this bereka, now un, uh, is now unpacked. He's telling the Ephesians that since they are in Christ, they're part of the ultimate reality that gives meaning to life and meaning to the entire universe, Jesus Christ. That's where we are. Because we're included in Christ, we're participants in God's eternal plan. Do you hear how much bigger this is than pray to receive Jesus and go to heaven? This is massive, and this is truth. Let me say again, because we're included in Christ, we're participants in God's eternal plan. Not just observers, but participants. While we live out our salvation in the present, and certainly we do, but outside and beyond time, we are already present with the Lord. No wonder Paul, Paul called this a great mystery. In Christ is the most important phrase in this passage, and I would say in this entire letter. The key for understanding this letter is knowing that believers have a new identity in Christ. The third thing we see in this passage is spiritual blessings in the heavenly places or the spiritual realm, or the heavenly realm. This is the realm that's all around us. It's outside of, but interacting with, time and space. It's In Matthew, he calls it, well, Jesus calls it the kingdom of the heavens. It's all around us. In this term, Jesus was expressing the ultimate reality that is both out there and in us and around us. When Jesus said that the kingdom is within us, He's telling us as disciples to live out of this greater reality. Paul's not being escapist here. We live both here and now and in Christ, drawing upon, as we live here and now, 
drawing upon and living in what Paul calls the heavenly places. We're going to look more at this as we we go on. This is the reality where Jesus lives, and we live in him. Like Jesus, both transcendent and imminent. Beyond us, but intimately impacting our lives. Paul is calling us to a greater awareness of the spiritual realm. In the heavenly places, five times in Ephesians. Now, heaven breaks in for us in lots of ways. And uh, these are some of the blessings that Paul's referring to. And you know, for example, when someone, you pray for someone and they're healed, heaven has broken in. That is the heavenly realm. When, when medicine is multiplied, as we've seen a number of times out in the field, that's the heavenly realm breaking in. They're manifestations of the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. These blessings belong to those who are united with Christ. Later in this letter, excuse me, Paul will tell us that the heavenly places, while they are the place of God's blessing, they're also the realm that is populated by evil spiritual powers. And he'll he'll talk about it, and and especially in chapter 6. So when we hit these this opposition. And whenever we push forward, folks, whenever we are extending the kingdom, we come right into opposition with these powers. And that's the source. It's these principalities and powers which are the source for the opposition. Remember, he said to us in chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but these powers that exist in the spiritual realm, we must not lose sight of this. It's so easy for us to think in just natural ways. Well, let's move on. All of that was verse 3, verses 4 to 6. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So first of all, he chose us in Christ from the foundation of the world. When we think of things like election and adoption and and, uh, maybe even predestination, though we're going to unwrap that in a minute, We mustn't think just individually. Of course, there's an individual aspect, but there is primarily a corporate aspect. You know, I I know that I was called. I know that that he chose me in Christ. He he continued to draw me. I didn't grow up in a family that that was we we never talked about God, and yet he he, I was foreordained somehow. When I, when I was just a little kid, a, a car not only ran over me, it stopped on my chest, and I got up and walked away. Well, as time went on, I realized, oh, Lord, that's what you did. When I was seven years old, neighbors said, do you want to come to Sunday school? And so I went, and I heard a man talk about Christ, and he said, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come forward. I didn't come forward. I didn't fully understand what he said, but it went into me, and it never left me. You see, it's part of this being chosen. There were so many incidents in school, and as a young man, suddenly just this awareness, but I didn't even have language for it. And now I look back on those things with a sense of holy wonder. Lord, you never, ever, ever let go of me, and from the beginning, you chose me and have called me. Now, having said all of that, which I'm so thankful for, I want us to look a little bit broader. He chose you. Well, this, of course, leads us to two words we hear a lot about, election and predestination. It's been a major theological discussion since St. Augustine for 1,600 years. So what does it mean to be chosen or elected? Is this something that was predestined regardless of us, or is there something conditional about this? Paul is stressing that we are active participants in God's eternal and foreordained plan. 
The focus is on God's initiative, what he has already accomplished before we could do anything to determine the outcome. Paul is restating something that the Lord had spoken over Israel in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. To be in a covenantal relationship with God always has two aspects. One, it is a unilateral promise and action coming to us from God. And two, always individuals may or may not participate, depending on their response. Therefore, this purpose didn't mean that every individual was part of this promise. Only those who kept the covenant with God were included. Paul is expressing the truth in the context of Jewish practice. The Jews understood their being chosen was as a people. Paul was speaking of a corporate election. The promise to Israel is now the promise to the church which finds its eternal existence in Christ. God had a plan before he created the cosmos, and this plan will be fully consummated at a future time when he sums up all things in Christ, which we're going to see in chapter 3. Individuals, you and I, were beneficiaries of this purpose in a general sense. But full participation requires personal faith in Christ. Therefore. Listen carefully. All humans have been predestined by God in the sense that this is God's desire for them. But only by responding in faith to Christ do they become placed into this greater purpose. You know, for the first 400 years of the church, the the individual election of people was never, ever even considered. It was St. Augustine who first introduced this, and then the Reformers built upon it, especially Calvin. Looked at another way, there is both an individual and a corporate understanding of being chosen. God has always chosen to have a bride for his son, the church. Paul is affirming that we are part, or as chosen, we're part of a chosen church. One of the things, by the way, folks, that's growing for me is this the, 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 the wonder around Christ, God's great purpose is his son Christ having a bride. I've said it, I've taught it, I've known it, we've probably, most of us, known it. But there's something deep. This is the culmination. Not the creation of the cosmos even. This is the culmination. I, how do we get our heads around that? But there's another aspect, an individual understanding, because Paul writes that we are marked out for adoption as his children. And adoption is always individual. You and I as individuals participate in the blessings given to the church, to the bride of Christ. But in our individualistic paradigm that we have in the 21st century, I'm encouraging us to think beyond that, not to negate it, but think beyond that about our inclusion into the body of Christ, that we are part of the bride of Christ. You know, for this passage, just I was trying to think of an analogy, but but in, in terms of understanding being chosen, think of, think of Jesus as a boat, uh, a lifeboat of some kind. And we are elected, invited into that boat as we stand in that vessel who is Jesus Christ himself. So once again, always there is God's promise and initiative, but it's our response. So now that's election. Let's look at predestined. I think a better word, by the way, is foreordained. Um, Because predestined is too charged with implications and even emotions that are simply not there. David Bentley Hart translates this verse, marking out in advance for adoption. I really like that. In Paul's day, prorizo was a simple everyday word that meant predetermined or purposed or designed or even planned. And it comes from the root word uh, that we use for horizon. 
and it's conveying the meaning of setting a limit or a boundary or a direction for us. This passage is about the blessings and fulfillment of ancient promises of God that have been there from before time, and we receive them when Christ dwells in us. So the focus on this passage is on Christ, not us. It's about the blessings that Christ gives to Christians. But this verse says nothing about which individuals get to be Christians, uh, as if it's by some divine decree or predetermination of God. This, This verse says nothing about salvation versus damnation. It's so wrong for us to put that in. Are you chosen? Are you in? Are you out? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything about God's love versus God's wrath. There is no individual in or out for Paul when he writes of being chosen and ordained. Rather, it is full of promise. It is full of good news. Paul's teaching on election to the Ephesians provides comfort. And it also counters the prevalence of fear that was swirling around among the Ephesians. Remember, in that atmosphere that emphasized Artemis and magic and witchcraft, God has one will. Hear this, one will, one destiny, not two destinies. Life with Christ is his destiny, his will. Sin, however, has another destiny. And we'll look more at that later. Destined for what? Before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Since God chose us before the world was even created. Imagine that. It suggests that something has been in process from before time even began part of an eternal plan, not God's emergency rescue because, you know, an apple got eaten in the garden to make it almost ridiculously caricature. But it, it isn't an emergency rescue plan. It's an eternal plan. He says before him, in his presence, Paul insists we are present before him now. This is why he will say that we are seated with him in heavenly places in chapter 2. I think there's both a present and a future truth in this. Since we will be in his presence, holy and uh, blameless forever, that's what he wants for us now. And that's what Paul's going to focus on in the second half of this letter, chapters 4 to 6, on what that looks like. In love, a central idea for Paul, 75 times in his letters, 20 times in Ephesians, he talks about love, and he always uses the word agape, not a love of the worthy, not a love that desires to possess. It is a giving love. It gives regardless of merit, a love that seeks to give. Holiness and blamelessness are affected by agape love. That is what causes holiness and blamelessness. Love fulfills the whole law. God's work in us is to produce holiness within us. God's work and love for one another. Verse 5. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. He destined us for adoption. Let's go back to David Bentley Hart's translation, because it's truer to the Greek. Marking us out in advance for adoption. Adoption is his children through Jesus Christ. The end of our election is this adoption. It's to be holy and blameless before him in love is part of our adoption. Adoption as sons and daughters in the only natural son of God, Jesus Christ. Holiness and glorification are the end that we were chosen for in eternity, to be with him, seated with him in heavenly places. Adoption is the highest expression of God's love toward his chosen people. It's the love of a father for his child. It's the love of God for his creation. Children of God must live holy lives in keeping with their identity. It just reflects who they really are. This is why he's going to call us again and again in this letter to call us back to being in Christ. It's who we really are. And he delights to adopt us. 
He says we're chosen and foreordained by God as sons and daughters. It means that although we were formerly sons and daughters of disobedience, we're going to see a big contrast in chapter 2, but now we are we are adopted by him, so we have no obligation. We have no responsibility to our old allegiance, Satan. And sometimes we live as if we do, as if he still made us do something. No, we're free. We now have a father who is loving, caring, and wants the best for us, all of us who are now in Christ. If adoption is about anything, it is about belonging to a family. This is so important for us to get called into a family. That's why I believe so much as I work with pastors and leaders, we always get to the place of talking about community and how do we create authentic family as community. So the final and greatest purpose of this election is relational. God's bringing us together. He's creating a people in whom he can delight and enjoy, not police. We are now spiritually related to Jesus, and we'll share with him now and in the final reality when our body uh, resurrection will make our adoption complete. Because we do live between the times, as I talked last week, the already and the not yet. But he shares right now his divine sonship with us. We're on the home stretch. Verse 6, to the praise of his grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Well, I talked quite a bit about grace at the beginning of today. But I want you to notice something. Which, to the praise of his grace, this is the first of those three times Paul uses this phrase. And here it's at the conclusion of the section that focuses on the Father. The only proper way to respond to the amazing love and favor that God shows us is to praise and thank him. He says, we are in the Beloved, capital B. We're in him. By the way, that's a very enduring term of affection in, uh, in Jewish culture. The Beloved, you, you, it expresses just great affection and care. I have intentionally, my years pastoring, often as I'm talking to the church, I would say, and Beloved, don't forget da-da-da-da, because it, I want it to get into them, this endearing term of affection, which is what Paul wants to get into the Ephesians and by extension into us, his great joy over all of this. Because we're in Christ, his belovedness is ours too. And so, to wrap this up, at the heart of Paul's theology is our union with Christ. Please think about that. In these first verses, his passion about this overflows in, in repetition and in layers of meaning. For God, this, or for Paul, this is the great revelation. Christ is, as Paul says, all in all. At the end of chapter one, we'll get to that. Christ, he is the creator. He is the author and the finisher. He is at the center of everything. It is Christ who gives ultimate meaning to everything. He is both imminent and transcendent. He's at the center of past and present and future. A theologian, Michael Carpenter, wrote this. The ultimate reality which give unity and coherence to all things in the world, is Jesus Christ. The meaning of life and of the universe itself is not an it. It is not a thing or a disembodied idea, but a person. God incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, and specifically his surpassing action committed within the humble confines of time and space of dying on a cross. The second thing I want to finish with is Paul is writing about our true and eternal identity in Christ. As wonderful as the creation of the cosmos is, the heavenly realm and the earth, ultimately, it is, as John Calvin said, a theater for God's glory. It's just a setting 
a theater. At the center of that theater is us, a people created as the fullness of him. The people of God are inhabitants of a history that is older than creation itself. We are rooted in the unity and purpose of all things, which is God's plan to have an eternal bride for his son. So let me repeat one sentence that I said earlier. While we live out our salvation in the present, and certainly we do, outside and beyond time, we are already present with the Lord. No wonder Paul called this a great mystery. God bless you. Tim and I'll sit down and talk through some of the implications of this in just a minute or two. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Okay, welcome back. We have questions. Uh, I've got several questions that came out of that, that was fantastic. I commented just during that brief break that it, it felt like we were racing through because there's just, even in those six verses, there's just so much fantastic stuff that you've unpacked for us. So uh, we're going to unpack a little bit of it, a little bit more. Yep. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to remind folks one more time about our uh, monthly giving champion program. Uh, we are... Uh, seeing a number of people just in the last few days, we've seen a number of people again, signing up for monthly giving. It's always just a huge blessing and encouragement to us because it helps us just say yes to more things. Um, And so uh, if, if you'd like to become a monthly giving champion, uh, head to impactnations.com slash monthly. Uh, If, uh, if you listened to the last couple episodes and and heard about uh, what it means to be a a monthly giver at impact nations, how it empowers us to radically transform lives uh, in the developing world, then, uh, Perhaps you haven't gotten to it yet, but now's the time. So please, this week, uh, head to impactnations.com slash monthly uh, and give uh, and sign up for monthly giving. Uh, some people like to do it uh, biweekly because that's when their paycheck comes out and it's just easier that way. I've uh, got a few different options for you. Um, but one of the cool things is actually as a monthly giving champion, we from time to time actually will give our, our monthly givers uh, a little bit of bonus material um, uh, or uh, an early sneak peek at some of the stuff we're working on. So as a monthly giver, uh, you know, every once in a while we'll send out a, a separate, maybe a devotional series from yourself or something like and that. And sometimes we'll do like a Zoom webinar. Yeah. And uh, and I can not only share some stuff that's on my mind, but it gives a chance for uh, Q&A and yeah, so forth. Absolutely. So th- there's some privileges with that because it's just our way of saying thank you. Absolutely. But I just would like to add, if I may, that mm-hmm. – um, it just keeps growing and growing, right? The kingdom yeah. of God's forcefully advancing. And uh, I'm aware right now we're, we're starting to reach into whole new nations. And, and it, we're doing it because God's opening doors. We're not looking for – we're not throwing a dart at a, at a map on a wall, Indeed. that's for sure. Yeah. And we, are, we have capacity. I know that there's a, a scouting trip coming up that, that, that may just open up a whole huge area. Absolutely. And, and so it's not like help us to just keep doing what we're always doing, although we love what we do. Yeah. <laughs> but he keeps calling us into things that are very literally rescuing yeah, lives. Absolutely. So we appreciate it so much yes. for any of you who will just make that commitment to, yeah. uh, to be a champion. Absolutely. And those who already have, thank you so much. Uh, I, I think you know what it, what it means to be a part of this incredible global family. Uh, and hopefully we'll get one of those Zooms going soon. We'll, we'll uh, all connect together and maybe get a couple of our partners on there to say thanks personally as well. So uh, impactnations.com slash monthly. Uh, head there right now if you want. Just hit pause. Come on back. We'll be waiting for you. Um, thanks so much. Okay. Uh, Ephesians 1. Um, yeah, that sentence is so long, it's going to take a few weeks to teach it, it sounds like. I think so. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to do that. Like, oh, he read the whole thing, and then, oh, no, he's only going to teach the first half of the sentence. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, in English, it looks like our translators did us a favor and, and actually broke it up into a few sentences. Yeah, they did. Um, so I, you know, I can't imagine the difficult decisions when you're looking at how many words in Greek is it? 202. 202. And that's why if you look at various translations that we have, our Mm -hmm. English translations, you'll see quite a bit of difference 
differences between them, and a quite a bit of discussion. Controversy is a, a strong word, but at least not full agreement mm. on what part belongs with one part. Yeah. What part? That the classic is in love. Is in love the end of the <laughs> the or is it the start of the next one? And it changes what it means. Yeah. Wow. Um, can we talk about that word apostle real quick? Uh, Love you, to. You mentioned, uh, you gave us a really great biblical definition of what, what Paul meant by apostle in, in his day and time. You also mentioned you hear that word used uh, in a very different context, obviously, in the 21st century church. Um, can you tell us, is there an appropriate time, is there an appropriate usage of the word apostle or apostolic um, that is... Maybe it's just a completely different meaning meaning nowadays. I don't know, but I, I certainly hear it used, and not always in a you know a boasting me me. I'm I'm a big shot kind of a way, but people will talk about an apostolic movement or mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Is it is there a good use of that word? Yeah, I'm I'm much more comfortable with the adjective mm-hmm. than I am the noun, um, and uh, I think that and it's it's an outgrowth of the the later part of the church growth movement in the 20th century where the, they really started to go from there into apostolic networks and people were building apostolic networks mm-hmm. and who they are uh, i uh, to my dying day i'll say it is not hierarchical it's not an organization yeah. and i think the most apostolic people i've ever met um huh, and no one that i've known you would never pick them out. Hmm. If there's a room full of people and there's a Bible study or there's a discussion, they're in the second or third row hmm. with a baseball cap on. Yeah. Um, and they wouldn't let anybody call them, you know, Apostle Fred or whatever. Yeah. That it is very much an active word. Apostles, and if we're going to say, well, what does it mean now? Well, if we're going to be biblical people, it better mean what it meant then yeah. in a modern context. Mm-hmm. And it was sent. It was those who go and extend the gospel, do the kingdom. It it wasn't those who stay back. Um, Paul was continuously traveling. Um, we know the same for, for all of his apostolic team. So I think we need to get a hold of that because otherwise it reinforces the passive church model mm. that, that you and I wrestle with all the time. Yeah. Is that an answer? It, yeah, and to, just to ex- expand on that a little bit, the passive church model very often is uh, ignoring the first part of that fivefold ministry verse, uh, Ephesians four eleven, where he's talking about uh, these positions are there to equip, right? And so the passive church model is that while we've got our pastors, our apostles, our, our evangelists, or whatever, we can sit back and let them do the work. Yeah, and it's to equip them for doing another discipleship series and uh, another foundation series. Right. No, no, to equip them for the work of ministry. Indeed. And so that's when I see apostolic, truly apostolic people, mm-hmm. you know, we have we have a dear brother, Randeep, who's yep. massive apostolic guy. How do I know? A, I've never heard him use that term about himself yep. ever. He'd mm-hmm. run from it. And B, he is continuously extending the kingdom. Yeah. You said run from it. Uh, I'm sure you have encountered uh, during your times of ministry overseas, and and I find I do find that there are certain nations that tend to lean into that language of a, apostle and bishop more than others. Uh, have you ever had to bring some gentle correction, even just in how people are referring to yourself? Uh, you, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's been some signage, for instance. Yeah, there has for <laughs> there, this one place that I, I went to in the 2000s, and they were lovely people, but there's this big huge banner the first time I came, you know, welcome Reverend Steve Stewart. And then I came the next year, welcome Apostle Steve Stewart. (laughs) And the third one was just, I loved it, welcome Apostle Dr. Steve Stewart. (laughs) Get an upgrade every time you show up. It's unbelievable. I'm really uncomfortable with -hmm. with kind of terminology. And um, I just think, let's just get on with it. And it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it's a little bit like when, if somebody tells me they're a prophet, I start looking for the exit. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody tells me they're an apostle, I'm just smiling and being polite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I think of it, this isn't technically grammatically correct, but I, I think apostle should be a verb hmm. more than a noun. Yeah, go do. <laughs> go That's apostle good. somewhere. Go apostle somewhere. <laughs> 
get out of my face and go apostle. Um, all right, let's talk about blessing. This is actually a really big part of your ministry. When you are, I, I've seen it, uh, when you are um, in a village somewhere and things, you are so often asking people, can I pray a blessing over you mm-hmm. in your home? Uh, uh, Bethany and I got an opportunity to do that many times uh, when we were together in India. Uh, when people have welcomed you into your home, it is, they are so eager to receive a blessing. Yes. Um can you you did some really good teaching today on on Paul's blessing and just kind of breaking down different components of it. When you are praying a blessing over someone, over a family, over their home, whatever, are there some elements that you can draw from even from today's teaching that like just some components of because I think for some people, if they're like, would you pray a blessing over me? That I sure I don't actually know what it means, but um, what's it what's it look like when you pray a blessing over? Well, someone? that's good. Well, it, it, truthfully, it never looks exactly the same mm-hmm. uh, because the first thing I'm doing right away is, Lord, what do you want to say? Yeah. Uh, I believe with all my heart, and you've heard me say it since you were a boy, it is it's sons and daughters who he gives a commission to yeah. release the Father's blessing. And for me, blessing is not a good wish or this would be nice. Mm-hmm. Blessing is pulling down on heaven, bringing the reality of heaven right then and there to that person's life. I may find myself suddenly praying into a particular thing that I didn't know I was going to pray, you know, mm-hmm. blessing their family's health or blessing whatever. Um, I think that, uh, I think one of the things that I'd like to say, if some folks meet in, in home groups and house churches and whatever, I have for years encouraged that we don't finish a group unless we release blessing. Mm-hmm. And that has got a, Again, pulling on heaven aspect to it. And um, I really believe because we are seated in heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6, um, because the reality of the heavenlies, of the kingdom of the heavens, I believe that it's not a nicety, it's not a religious activity. There's something in the mystery of Christ that we can release the activity of heaven uh, over people's lives. Mm-hmm. Good. Um this actually that leads very well into my next question. You you really hammered home the need for us to begin to grasp this understanding of what it means to participate in his death, resurrection, and new life. Mm-hmm. Um, if how to, I don't know how to ask this, I guess if if we are indeed beginning to grasp that, if we're beginning to operate in the reality that we are participating in his death, resurrection, and new life. What are some of the signs that that is the case? Like, how will we know that we're finally starting to get it, that we're going deeper in that understanding? Wow, that's a great question. I don't know that I've ever been asked that. Uh, so I'll just give you what comes to me. Yeah. Um, we have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Mm-hmm. And as I said, Colossians, the, the whole baptismal passage, we're yeah. buried with him. But but what is the nature of his death? It's canonic love. Mm -hmm. It's emptying. If I am finding myself, to my amazement, um, being more emptied Mm -hmm. in my ego, in my drive, in my impatience, in my... If I find myself, I'm not saying I have to try to be more patient or whatever, um, then if that canonic love, if I find myself just more naturally taking the lower place, more naturally helping somebody else, more naturally, um, then I think that's a sign uh, that the eternal reality that I am with him in Christ, therefore I I am with him in his resurrection, that is bearing tangible, or in his death, that is bearing tangible fruit. Mm -hmm. In his resurrection, when I begin to see things like I've never seen before, I start to see... Uh, whether that is uh, I'm getting a sense of, of where God's taking me or taking us or yeah. uh, when I find hope rising up in the midst of something really crummy, you know, and challenges, and we all have those individually, we have the, the impagnations because mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're pushed against, as I alluded to earlier. When I find without trying hope rising up, this living hope, First Peter 1, 3, then to me, that's resurrection life. Mm-hmm. 
Is that an answer? Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Um, all right. One last question. Uh, we'll only touch on it. It's too big, but uh, I, I think it's important to to touch on it a little bit. You uh, you quoted Calvin near the end, um, but Calvin is perhaps most famous for uh, the doctrine that came out of his teaching, which was Calvinism. Uh, Calvinism it, it talks about predestination and it has a very different understanding of predestination than that which you gave us to understand today, um, which is. Uh, and I won't do it very do this justice at all, but basically, uh, before time, uh, God uh, foreknew or, or or predestined a select number of people by name of who He was going to uh, yeah. bring to salvation, and those who He didn't pick, they're out. And so sorry. Uh, today, you talked at least from this passage. You said, "Look, there's nothing in this passage about in or out when it's talking about uh, predestination or election." Yep, it's not there. Um, where where did that? Um, that theology come from. Okay. Well, we're going to review a little bit because if people want to go deeper, um, I think it's around episode 51 of the of the Matthew season okay. where I give, I give, I think, two hours to this. Mm-hmm. Historically, it came, uh, the, the door opened a crack under Augustine, who was the first one who ever talked about original sin, and then Anselm, in the 11th century, uh, then he talked about satisfaction theory and in terms of, of having to satisfy God's honor. Mm-hmm. And then John Calvin in the 16th century, he took it way further in, in God's justice. Yeah. And, and folks, just look back there where I've got time. So that's how it started to come in. Um, I'm going to be touching some of that several times through this mm-hmm. series. And in the first half of chapter two, we're gonna we're gonna go a little bit on what that means, and because it's tied in with the wrath of God, yeah. which is a massive, massive issue. And if if there's anything that I can <coughs> help for God for people's eyes to be open to who God really is, mm-hmm. then I really hope around that issue. Yeah. Um, because if predestination, if you have a Calvinist view, you're in or you're out, then either he's for you or he's against you. Mm, yeah. There's no way around it. Yeah. Uh, you're either blessed or cursed. Yeah. And uh, with all my heart, I do not believe that is Paul's gospel. I do not believe that is the early church's gospel, and it's certainly not my gospel. Yeah, very good. All right, so more on that in the weeks to come. Uh, folks, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we are just getting started on Ephesians. I can't wait to dig in further with you. Uh, if you have any questions for us, do write us at podcast at impactnations.com or leave us a comment on YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, uh, do join us every Thursday. We upload to YouTube, uh, and you'll see us there. It's usually around six o'clock on uh, Thursday evenings, uh, mountain time. Um, so you can watch it there, uh, or uh, and if you're on YouTube, uh, subscribe, hit the little bell. That way you get the notification. As I always say, we also upload lots of great videos uh, throughout the year as well, just amazing stories of rescue and stuff like that. So uh, I think that will really bless you. So YouTube, subscribe, hit the bell. You'll get notifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, uh, you can subscribe to the audio podcast on your favorite podcast app, uh, and that will just get delivered to your device every single week so you can listen to this on your way to work or whatever. Um, but thank you so much for being with us. Uh, If you want to learn more about Impact Nations, head to impactnations.com. If you want to give monthly, please do that at impactnations.com slash monthly. Uh, Otherwise, we will see you again next Thursday. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. God bless.